Good evening. And welcome to the first public lecture of the second week of the 1988 Rare Book School, which will be the largest of the four weeks this summer. Our lecturer this evening is Felix Damaras Oyens, who is no stranger to these shores, having inaugurated teaching the first of all Rare Book Schools here in 1983, and then again in 84 and in 85. I regret very much that Father Kingery is not in residence this week. He was here last week because he is a legend among Rare Book School students. He took Felix Oyens for five mornings one week, and he took Tom Tansel for five afternoons in the same week, getting usually between 15 and 20 minutes for lunch by way of a transition between the early printed book and scholarly uh, editing, and he yet he comes back. As does Felix, and it's a very great pleasure to welcome him to Columbia. Thank you very much. I hope I made enough copies of the handout, which is two pages of rather funny-looking names that are going to be mentioned in this lecture. And since some of them are pronounced in a, uh, in a somewhat pedantic way, I thought it might be useful to, to have them on a, on a typed list. Even the most passionate book collectors must learn to live with disappointments as well as their triumphs. But in the afternoon of Tuesday, 10th June, 1806, Willem Hendrik Jakob, Baron von Westrene von Thieland, got a particularly nasty surprise. He had given a fairly strong bid of 275 florins on lot 511 in the folio section of the Rover sale, an illuminated copy printed on vellum of the second edition of Virgil's opera, Venice, Wendelin of Speyer, 1470. The auctioneer accidentally failed to execute the commission and knocked the incunable down to the Parisian dealer Guillaume de Bure the Elder at a mere 200 florins. If only the underbidder, Honkop Brothers, booksellers in Leiden, where the sale was held, had been successful, a discreet approach might still have saved the day. But de Boer was acting for one of his severest and most learned clients, the Hellenist Pierre-Henri Larcher, and the book had to be given up as lost. In fact, since paper copies are quite as rare as vellum ones, the Baron never did buy the Spira Virgil, and to this day it cannot be found in the Low Countries. It's rare in this country, too. There are vellum copies at the Morgan and at Princeton, and a paper copy at the Chapin Library. Later in the 19th century, the Rover Larcher copy crossed the channel to join the Honorable Thomas Grenville's library and formed part of his staggering gift to the British Museum. Besides rarity, several other considerations presumably fueled von Westrenen's desire for the Virgil. The realization that a quarter of a century earlier, 
a vellum copy had fetched 2,308 livres, over 1,000 florins, at the Paris de Maisieux sale, now at the Bibliothèque Nationale, and another, 1,925 florins, at the Crivenna sale of 1790. The latter had been acquired by Henry George Quinn and bequeathed at his death the year before the Rover sale to Trinity College, Dublin. Von Westrenen was also in a better position than most of his competitors to know that the edition was not represented in the famous collection of his kinsman, Johannes Meermann. Meermann did not bid against the distant cousin, 30 years his junior, and his name is conspicuously absent from the auction's roster of buyers. Thus, von Westrenen was able to secure a tremendous bargain at the Rover sale that amply compensated for his Virgilian disaster, namely the earliest extant book printed in Italy, the 1465 Subiaco Cicero de Oratore by Sweinheim and Panatz. The copy, still the only one in either the Netherlands or Belgium, has a wormhole, ignored in the Rover catalogue, but undoubtedly noticed by serious viewers. Interesting contemporary illumination, also unmentioned, and a fine 18th century The Hague binding by the same atelier that was patronized by stadtholder Willem IV, summarily catalogued as VDS Pl, meaning Vaudoré sur plat, or calf gilt. But it fetched only 52 florins, compared with the Lavallière copy in 1784 at the equivalent of 300 florins and 320 florins for the Crevenna copy. With the extremely ill-advised auction sale by the John Rylands University Library of Manchester of 66 books from the collection of the greatest exponent of haute bibliophilie, second Earl Spencer, fresh in our memory, it might be an appropriate time to take a look at a few 18th and early 19th century Dutch bibliophiles who competed with the likes of Lavallière, Rivitsky, and Spencer. A look, regrettably brief, as each of these collectors deserved monographic study on Munbian scale, especially at the medieval Renaissance manuscripts and printed books in their collections, and a look at the course of dispersal. It will indicate what this audience no doubt already knows, that the integral survival of rare book collections formed in modern times is hardly commoner than of more practical libraries formed in the late Middle Ages. The history of Georgian, revolutionary and contemporary bibliophily and book trade, overwhelming as it may be, is critical to our reconstruction of medieval and Renaissance book production and markets. All provenance study is important and any steps that impede it should be discouraged. The investigator of this field is exceptionally fortunate to find himself in New York City, where the Groyer Club provides uniquely easy access to strong and specialized holdings. Most of the slides you will see this evening have been taken from catalogues generously made available for the purpose by the club's librarian. This one shows the Rover catalogue at the entry for the Virgil that Baron von Westrenen missed. 
De Groeyer Klopp's copy originally belonged to Benjamin Petrus von Weselus Scholten, Röver's nephew by marriage and the compiler of the catalogue for the auctioneers, Haag of Leiden and an Hengst of Amsterdam. The manuscript annotations in Scholten's copy give valuable insight into the conduct and outcome of the sale and go well beyond what one expects to see in marked-up auction catalogues. He notes not just the buyers and prices, and you see here the, the aggregates of each day's sessions, but sometimes also the figure at which the bidding was started, underbidders, occasionally even second underbidders. Clients, private and institutional, for whom the buyer of record, whether dealer or sales clerk, has acted. For instance, here, three, nine, uh, three 14th to 15th century Welle manuscripts of Mele Stoker's Reimchronik, an important verse chronicle of Holland, were sold together for 600 florins, by far the highest price of the sale. It was knocked down to Karel Gerard Hultmann, who outbid the De Hague booksellers van Kleef, and, as Scholten informs us here, acted directly for the Dutch National Library, soon to be called the Royal Library. And he also notes additional points of bibliography and condition. As here, against Lot 237, Scholter records De Beer as the successful bidder at 355 florins versus Hultmann, who must have been executing another National Library bid. There was no copy then, and there is no copy now in a Dutch institution. Then he adds the rather crucial information that this copy of the Editio Princeps of Livy is made up, with several leaves at the beginning inserted from another, shorter copy. Scholter wrote an informative Latin memoir of Rover as an introduction to the catalogue. He was a competent cataloguer and made frequent use of the existing reference books in those pre-Hein days, Panzer's Annales, Renoir's Les Aldes, etc. If an incunable has no colophon, he routinely gives enough detail in the form of transcriptions, type description and line counts for us to identify the edition. One bibliography he uses to good effect and consistently refers to is Jakob Fisser's 1767 nomenclature of Dutch incunabula, which first appeared as an appendix to the abridged edition of Gerard Meermann's widely read book on the invention of printing.
Fisser stands at the beginning of a long and important tradition of Dutch incunable studies that includes Holtrop, Campbell, and in our own generation, the late father Kruidwagen and the Hellingas. But even now, it is sometimes useful to turn back to Visser, as he made the happy decision to specify the copy or source on which he based his information. Incidentally, Visser's own important incunable collection would be acquired by the Royal Library of The Hague in 1810. Schalter, the Rover cataloger, also relied to a great extent on two monumental 18th century sale catalogues. La Vallière, compiled by de Bure and the brilliant Van Praat, whose catalogues of vellum printed books continue to be indispensable to the modern incunabulist, and Crivena's catalogue of his own collection. Schalter nostalgically and invitingly cites numerous La Vallière and Crivena prices, a strong indication of what had happened to the continental market since the glut caused by the upheavals of the French Revolution. He had an interest in making the catalogue commercially attractive since his wife, Rover's niece, was probably a beneficiary of the estate and he spent a fair amount of money himself at the sale. He was not always happy with the prices realised by the multi-volume antiquarian works in the sale, as when he tersely inscribed not expensive, cheap, or weggegeven, given away. More rarely, a satisfied note creeps in, such as well paid. If we applied our own standards of what is commercially valuable, we would mostly disagree with him. Some 17th and 18th century editions of the classics and historical works seem relatively expensive, whereas 15th century woodcut books strike us as ludicrously cheap. For example, the 1499 Cologne Chronicle and a colored copy of the Utrecht Rolevink each sold for about one-tenth of a 1763 Amsterdam edition of Herodotus and at only 2% of the 1648 Corpus Historiae Byzantinae. Today, these ratios would be completely reversed. Only the prices of the earliest printed books and the illuminated manuscripts rose above those for the large imposing sets of later centuries, in itself a reversal of the situation prevailing a hundred years earlier, as I hope to demonstrate in this lecture. Matthias Röver, born at Delft in 1719, published his first Latin verse at the age of 16. He finished his law studies in Leiden, 1737, wrote philological and legal tracts, and edited Greek classical texts. His long life was spent within the confines of his magnificent library, until, bibliophile to the last gasp, at age 82, he died in a fall from his library ladder. <laughs> Only one in a distinguished line of antiquarians to choose that route. From a Greek manuscript of Demetrius Ducas Cretensis, of Complutensian polyglot fame, already then in the Bodleian Library, he edited at age 18 Museus's Hero and Leander 
for the same publishing firm that 70 years later would organize the sale of his library, Haag of Leiden. He had two copies printed on vellum of his museos and luxuriously bound by the leading Dutch workshop of the period to do mosaic work. Recently baptized, first Stadtholder bindery by Jan Sturm von Leeuwen. The copy he kept for himself came up in the sale as lot 613, quarto section, and fetched the enormous sum of 200 florins, say about 20 pounds in sterling terms, to de Beur for the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. This must have rather pleased Schalter, who was the owner of the other vellum copy in a similar gold-tooled and inlaid Morocco binding. It found its way, after Schalter's death, to the collections of Lord Vernon, Robert Stainer Hofert, and Mortimer Schiff. In that order, and now rests in the Pierpont Morgan Library, which got it a few years ago at what Schalter would now probably consider much too low a price of $3,500. The binding is one of the few minor Dutch 18th century masterpieces in that applied art, and is reproduced here with permission from a slide supplied by the Morgan. The sale, which was held on Haag's premises, consisted of 4,399 lots, lasted 16 days, and brought a total of 22,563 florins and one sou. The catalogue is organized by format and then subject, whereas the order of sale was by subject subdivided in formats, common practice at the time. The distribution of the catalogue was truly international. You can see there were representatives as far afield as, as Moscow. Even our auction houses would be proud of this kind of representation. The sale included 34 medieval manuscripts and 131 incunabula, no large numbers for the time, but especially the early printed books were uncommonly fine and interesting. Rare Dutch incunables were only to be expected, whereas the strength in important early Italian books and Greek classics is more surprising. Hultmann, acting for the National Library and others, as already indicated, was an active buyer, as were von Westrene, Flamand, and the auctioneers themselves. But de Boer handsomely justified Anthony Hobson's recent epithet for him, High Priest of La Haute Bibliophilie. He dominated the sale. Imperial France was apparently still insatiable for literary property, even after all the organized library looting on the heels of the victorious revolutionary armies. Although all price comparisons over long periods of time are quite meaningless, unless related to the cost of money or living, and far be it from me to hope for sniggers, I cannot entirely resist lifting two incunables from the Rover sale and tell you what similar copies bring today. The Aldine Aristotle, which you see described here, which curiously von Westrene was never to acquire, 
brought 80 florins to the Leiden dealer Luchtmans in the Rover sale. Seven months ago, Countess Doheny, Doheny's copy, made $120,000. And it was in very, much, in very similar condition to, to what the Rover copy looks like. And in fact, just a couple of months ago, the Spencer copy in, in not quite as fine condition made, in, made even 110,000 pounds. For the first edition of Apuleus, described here in the Rover catalogue, de Boer had to pay the fourth highest price in the sale, 300 florins or 30 pounds sterling. Last April, the Spencer copy brought £39,000 at the Ryland sale in London. Note the change of relative value between the Aristotle and the Apuleius, neither of which, by the way, was or is of true rarity. Owing to the public nature of auction sales, and the deep ignorance surrounding most art trade and sale room reporting, not only in the daily and periodical press, Soren Malikian of the International Herald Tribune is the only interesting correspondent in the field I know of, and even he is weak on books, but also in specialized journals and the breathless art and auction magazines. The general impression has been created that in our Warholesque time, the ivory hammer almost invariably decides the movement of important works of art and literary property. The truth is different. However, book auctions do have a long, complicated history, and their origi origins are not without mystery. Perhaps computers and new communications technology will one day change the ways auctions are conducted, but apart from puzzlement at the occasional use of the odd telephone satellite, the participants in the Rover sale would feel quite at home attending a 1988 auction of early books at, say, Hartung and Karls in Munich. In the period of high bibliophily, the 18th and 19th century, selling books by auction with a printed catalogue was a firmly established trade practice. The study of its history has been somewhat thin and the literature is scattered. The late Graham Pollard, in an extremely expensive Roxborough Club publication, and Anthony Hobson, in a classic lecture to the Bibliographical Society, gave more than a hint of how fascinating, difficult, but fruitful, more systematic investigation would be. The Dutch scholar Bert von Zelm has recently come out with admirable work on the first decade of the 17th century. Although auctions of private possessions that included scrolls may have taken place in ancient Rome, book sales, like so much else, were introduced into medieval Europe from the Islamic world. A sale of the library of Judge Abu al-Mutrif was held in the mosque at Cordoba in 1011. In 1223, the literary property of Abraham ben Samuel Haharit 
was auctioned off in the Cairo synagogue. A catalogue of this Jewish sale survives, listing buyers' names and prices. A French scholar, Guy Malouvier, has written about these oldest surviving manuscript catalogues. In 1417, multiple copies of the catalogue of the library of Domingo Ponce of Barcelona, including descriptions of bindings, were distributed before the sale. A Castilian law of 1386 even deals with the practice of reserves. Rather like in New York of the 1980s, auction sales of art and objects were much en vogue in 16th and 17th century Madrid. The Elisabeth de Valois, Queen of Spain, sale, including a number of books, lasted six years, from 1569 to 1575. Book sales in Venice were organized by the procurators of St. Mark's. In 1608, the Pinelli Library was sold en bloc as a single lot in Naples to an agent for Cardinal Borromeo. The auction was conducted by candle, as described in great detail by Mr. Hobson. Until well into the 17th century, many sales in Italy, France and England were held in this confusing manner, but the early Dutch practice of knocking goods down to their successful bidders seems to have been by three strikes from a large baton or hammer. Book auctions are known to have been organized in the southern Netherlands in the early 15th century and probably spread northwards during the 16th century when a, when a significant intellectual and artistic shift occurred as a result of the religious wars and the birth of the Dutch Republic. That these earliest sales mostly happened in Louvain and Leiden, seats of recently founded universities, is clearly no coincidence. Other venues were Antwerp, where the famous printer Christophe Plantin acted as expert in 1569, and where Ortelius's library was sold in 1598, and The Hague, residence of the States General. By 1600, Holland was a world power, the economic center, where the book trade was much freer than anywhere else. In 1725, the young polyhistor Albrecht von Haller remarked that nowhere in the world do so many people live off books as in Leiden. And I quote, if during one of his medical lectures, Boerhaave praises a book in the morning, it is for sale everywhere in the afternoon at double the normal price. It is in this kind of climate that in 1599 the first book sale took place for which a printed catalogue has survived. It survived in two copies in, in Amsterdam and Copenhagen. As it happens, it was not just any sale, but the auction of part of the working library belonging to the recently deceased Philips von Marnix, Lord of St. Aldegonde, a pivotal figure in the Dutch revolt against Spain, William the Silent's ambassador at large, author of Beehive of the Romish Church, almost immediately translated into English, of the Go song Wilhelmus von Nassau, now the Dutch national anthem, and the metrical translator of the Psalms from the Hebrew.
and you see the title page of his sale catalogue reproduced here. Mannix had lost his Brussels library in the political turmoils. To compensate him, Prince William of Orange expropriated the legal collection of a Frisian councillor to King Philip II, Joachim Hopper. After Mannix's death, the legal portion of his second library was auctioned in The Hague without catalogue, and thus consisted mostly of stolen books. I suppose most people know E.P. Goldschmidt's famous dictum, every, every early book was stolen at least once. The portion that was sold in Leiden, this one here, consisted of theology, medicine, history, philosophy, and music. And the catalogue listed the books in that order. As you can see, the printer was Christophe Guillot, but the unmentioned auctioneer was Louis Elsevier, who may have charged 5% of the proceeds for his services. The fee paid by him, the fee paid him by Daniel van der Molen's heirs for a similar sale two years later. The Monique sale, which was held on 6 July 1599 at the widow's house, consisted of about 1,650 unnumbered lots. I say about because the, the separation of the, of the entries isn't always clear. There are legions of questions one should like to have answered, but it is best to admit that we just do not know how the sale was conducted. But we do have the catalogue, and although primitive, it tells us quite a lot. Many books are in Hebrew or Greek and testify to Marnix's known linguistic skills while it is obvious that the compiler did not read Hebrew. A striking number of, of lots are books printed in England or Scotland. Except for a separate manuscript section at the end, there are cases throughout where it is hard to tell whether the book offered might not be manuscript rather than printed. I count over a dozen incunables, which is a bit more than the previous students of the catalogue um, Brauer and Hellinger, and five books whose bindings apparently rated a mention, namely that they are gilt. The only printers mentioned in the descriptions are Plantin, the Astiens, and Euronymus Comelin of Heidelberg. There is very little Erasmus, but the finely illustrated French Hypnorotomachia polyphili seems frivolous in this Calvinist gathering. Other illustrated books include the first edition of Fuchs and other Herbals, a Münster, and atlases by Brown and Hogenberg, Ortelius and Mercator. Roman type is used in the catalogue for the entries of books in Latin, Italian and Spanish. Gothic for Dutch, English, German. At the end of the catalogue, is the tantalizing announcement that following the books, some paintings by Albrecht Dürer will be sold. I'll just point out a few books that you might recognize. This is the Genoa Polygon. 
and also on the table countries like Libya Latina, a, a very, very old and mutilated Latin Bible, rather than three countries. Then it says here the old, old Dutch Bible, printed in the year 1450, <laughs> which is probably the Colonial Government Bible. And here it says part of the Bible uh, from Pharaoh Promenade to Ezekiel. And that is presumably the Delta to that show which is called this. Half a dozen years before the Marnik sale, which he may well have attended, came to Leiden University after three years of negotiations the greatest and most famous editor and philologist of the time, Joseph Justice Scaliger, the pioneer of historical reconstruction and chronology. He left most of his library behind in France, but quickly built up another highly important collection. When the most revered scholar of Northern Europe died in 1609, he bequeathed to the university library 170 Oriental manuscripts and editions, and all his Greek and Latin manuscripts, where they remain for study to this day. His closest friends, including his distinguished pupil Daniel Hensius, were allowed to select some printed books for themselves. His generosity in giving books away is attested by inscriptions in numerous copies surviving in our major research libraries. The remainder of his book collection was sold at auction by Elsevier, and the catalogue, printed by the Englishman Thomas Basson, survives. Sadly, Petrus Scriverius's annotated copy with prices and buyers' names, formerly at Kiel, fell victim to World War II. Marginal annotations in Scaliger's hand were definitely considered a selling point and the books that have them, upwards of 10%, are marked in the catalogue with an asterisk. Yes, there are several here. About 1,700 books were offered, and there is an appendix of unrelated consignments. A major buyer at the sale was the librarian, Latinist and poet, Daniel Hensius, acting both for the university and himself. Daniel's annotated copy of the Aldine Editio Princeps of Pausania's description of Greece is now in the Houghton Library, although it has lost its companions, an Athenaeus and Philostratus from the same press, with which it was still bound up in the 17th century. In 1655, Daniel's library was inherited by his even more talented son, Nicholas. Nicholas Hensius and his fellow classicist Isaac Fossius were probably the most active Dutch book collectors of the 17th century. Both scoured Europe for rare books in the service of Queen Christina of Sweden, most of whose books are now preserved at the Vatican. At some point, 
they were allowed to reimburse themselves out of her collection for debts owed to them by the voracious queen. Fossius especially made a great coup by selecting a 9th century illustrated manuscript of Aratus that evidently goes back to a model of very great antiquity. This wonderful codex was recently loaned by Leiden University to the Morgan Library, the first time it has been on exhibition in this country. At Fossius's death, his heirs managed to sell his collection en bloc to the States of Holland for 33,000 guilders, a figure not unlike the total of the Heinsius sale, which placed it in the university library. When Nicolaus Heinsius died in 1681, his library was consigned for auction to the Leiden bookseller Johannes de Vivier, who had Abraham Elsevier print a fat little catalogue listing over 13,000 lots. Four issues are known of this celebrated catalogue, two of which I can show you. The first is the auction issue with a title stating place and date of sale, shown here. The other omits all reference to a sale and was evidently marketed after the event as an enumerative bibliography and price guide, with the results supplied in manuscript. It was organized by subject and format, and within each format section, the numbering was started anew. Although the entries are still of the briefest kind, the cataloging has markedly improved since the Scaliger sale, and most editions are easily identifiable. Because of its fame and wide circulation, the catalogue has had a long-lasting influence on subsequent bibliographical literature, which is still not entirely spent. Take, for instance, Lot 94 in the folio section of Mathematicians and Philosophers. A Louvain edition dated 1481 of Boetius incorporating the pseudo-Thomist commentary, bound up with two manuscript works by English authors. Now, the conclusion is probably inevitable that 1481 is a misprint for 1484, when indeed an edition of Philosophy's Comfort was printed by Johannes de Westphalia in Louvain. But Vivier's entry was copied by the great Metaire, he by Ponsa, then Hein, then Campbell, who had his doubts, je la crois fabuleuse, but gave it a number anyway, until the Gesamtkatalog der Wiegendrucke dryly denied the ghost its own number with a dismissive, nicht nachweisbar. Total proof of spuriousness could of course only be furnished by rediscovery of the Heinsius copy itself, but the chances of the book having eluded all breakers of Sammelbände of the last three centuries must be rated very slim. The Parisian theorist of book collecting, Jean Viardot, has dated the veering away from the tenets of Gabriel Naudet's At Vie pour dresser une bibliothèque to around 1700. The utilisateur des bons livres brought up on the principles of Cardinal Mazarin's librarian, were joined, if not exactly replaced, by the collectionneur de livres curieux. This bibliophile change of direction 
roughly coincided with the sudden growth of book sales in France. The emergence of Gabriel Martin and his introduction of commercial and bibliographical sophistication into auction cataloguing. A similar development took place in England, and I think the pattern can be extended to Holland. By these standards, the Heinsius collection, Vivier's catalogue, and the prices realised firmly belong in the 17th century. The most expensive book was the huge 17-volume set of Magna Bibliotheca Patrum, 1644, at 140 guilders, closely followed by the 13-volume Ornithologia of Aldrovandus at 102 guilders. To put these prices in perspective, Peter Rietberg, in a recent study of the book purchases of the 17th-century scholar Lucas Holstenius, calculated that a fully employed Dutch wage earner needed 200 guilders a year to support a family of four. Generally, the larger the book, the more money it commanded. But the complete Aldine Aristotle with his Scaliger provenance made only six guilders, six stavos. The same book, I remind you, that would be among the most valuable in the Rover sale several generations later. Whereas the 1590 Aristotle brought 16 stavos more, i.e. 7 guilders too, than, than the Aldine Aristotle. Hensius had taken particular pride in the copies annotated by his father, Scaliger, Salmasius, and others, and comparison shows that these annotations at least doubled the prices. By contrast, such 18th-century collectors as Geronimo de Bos and Count Dravitsky avoided them in favour of wide and clean margins. The highly important first edition of Lascaris' Erotemata, Milan, 1476, fetched three guilders, 14 stervos, hardly more than common later editions, something that the great English incunable collectors only a couple of decades later must have looked back on with astonishment as they nostalgically leafed through their special, marked-up, large-paper copies of the Heinsius catalogue. Most early manuscripts in the sale are of classical texts and brought modest prices, including an amazing total of 38 Ovid manuscripts, which both Heinsius's had used in laying the basis for our modern recension of the Latin poet. One of the buyers of Greek books at the sale was Friedrich Benedict Karpsov, whose own landmark auction was to draw scholarly and bibliophile Europe to Leipzig in 1700. For example, the Harvard copy of Gnomologiae Paliototon Poeton, Paris Adrien Turnebe, 1553, was his and comes from the Heinsius sale. Englishmen also attended the sale. One of them was Edward Bernard, astronomy professor at Oxford, who hopped over to Leiden again in 1696 for the Goliath sale of Oriental literature. His purchases remain in the Bodleian Library.
barely 20 years after the Heinzia sale, the emphases of auction descriptions had changed in significant ways. In the Paulus von Uechelen catalogue, prepared by the Amsterdam bookseller Hendrik Wettstein, the title advertises the high quality and rarity of the books, the fine bindings and illumination of the atlases, etc. It is one of the earliest sale catalogues to boast a frontispiece, showing the library in situ, although no doubt a highly idealized version, with Minerva literally showing us the way, as the sale was held in the house guild vellum, occasionally even a precise count of illustrations, etc. Nine lots with illumination are specially announced as being sold at a particular time on a particular day, including a Dutch manuscript book of ours. Lot 193. And a Parisian printed horai, use of Poitiers, 1506, with its metal cuts heightened in gold. Lot 192. The catalogue spells out one auction practice at this date that I have not heard of before. In translation, according to the custom in this city, we shall start the sale at the end of the catalogue and work backwards to the front. In 1712, the 8500 lot sale of Johannes von Marx's library was held by Abraham de Hond in the Aula Magna, auctioneers always boast of their great rooms, of a government building, the venue of the Hague auction since the early 17th century. The frontispiece shows, somewhat, shows much aimless shifting of, of leaning and sitting on heavy folios. It, it, it rather reminds me of, of the second act of, of Zeffirelli's Otello at, at the Met last season. Here, the sale followed the catalogue from beginning to end, although the progression was more of a jumping back and forth caused by the format and subject divisions. The cataloguer makes a point of giving the names of famous 16th century printers, not only the usual ones, such as Aldous, Estienne, Plantin, etc., but also Guillaume de Brocard, Vascozan, and Griffius. Just as he does today, the auctioneer reserved the right to offer lots together or divide them up. Thus, the Hunt offered the whole folio section of Aristotle commentaries, 62 separately listed items, as a single lot, 250 florins. The highest price in the sale, 1,399 florins, forms no great surprise. A set of colored blau and Jansonius atlases, but the, high, but the second highest price, 530 florins, shows the presence in the sale room of the modern collector. An early, large, folio manuscript Bible on vellum with miniatures. Lot 28 on the reproduction. This price pattern was repeated in the Bundermarker sale of 1722, organized in Amsterdam by Johannes Bohm, 
whose cataloger wrote a fine description of the provenance of the Duc de Berry's Bible Historiale from the Alexandre Petot collection. Had this manuscript been in the Hainsier sale, it would have received a one or two line description and perhaps would have found a reluctant taker at a very modest price. But we have now entered the era of high bibliophily and auction fever. The two-volume Bible was bought for 500 florins by Robert Harley, Earl of Oxford, and is now Harleian Manuscripts 4381-2 in the British Library. It has an entry in, hum in Humphrey Wanley's diary, but the provenance is not known to its editors, the rights. Only Bundelmacher's giant atlas fetched a higher price than these medieval and Renaissance treasures so coveted by the new bibliophiles. A staggering 8,900 florins, about 900 pounds sterling, and surely some sort of record until the Valdafo Boccaccio made history in the Roxburgh sale. For 103 uniform portfolios of maps and views, catalogued by Bohm, in a 142-page description, an effort in hype that paid off and would do Christie's and Sotheby's public relations departments of 1988 proud. The Bundemarker Atlas was acquired by the Portuguese ambassador to the States General, who was able to enjoy it for only three years until the destruction of his house and its contents in a disastrous fire. Simo de Ricci was undoubtedly correct in observing that it was especially the Netherlands that the agents for Harley and Sunderland visited, attending the Hague and Amsterdam sales and ready to make private purchases as well. Practically all the Groyers and other fine books in the Peto and Marsar sale, conducted by the Hond only a month before Böhm's Bundemarker sale, were carried off by English collectors. Photographer should be punished for this. He cut off the word catalogue at the, at the top of the page. The 18th century saw the French and Dutch bookselling auctioneers, unlike their English and German counterparts, beginning to write long, detailed descriptions with learned notes on the early books that appealed the most to the new breed of rich and noble collectors. At the same time, they switched from Latin to French, a language then more commonly spoken in Holland than English is now. In Paris, this industry culminated in the great Lavalliere catalogue of 1783 by de Boer and Van Praat. In Amsterdam, in Changuillon and in Hengst's 1789 sale catalogue of the Crivenna collection, partly based on the owner's private library catalogue, of 1775 to 6. Not only ghosts of editions can be in inadvertently created, so can ghosts of collectors. Bogeng in Die Großen Bibliophilen cheerfully describes the collecting activities of two Crivenas, father and son, but the son ought to be laid to rest. Pietro Antonio Crivenna was born in Milan, 1736. He settled in Amsterdam as a tobacco and snuff merchant 
there married the daughter of another Italian merchant of great wealth, and after her father's death, added her maiden name, from then on calling himself Peter Anthony Bolongaro Crivena. He erected a building on the Nieuwezijd Furburgwal, right behind the Dom Palace, which became famous in 18th century Amsterdam as the House of Crivena with the Hanging Gardens. After inheriting his father-in-law's fortune, he devoted himself entirely to bibliophily. In 1789, for unknown reasons, he decided to sell his whole collection, except for the reference books and a very few rare items. The sale took place in the owner's house from 26th April until 15th June 1790. Viewing was by appointment during the fortnight preceding the sale, and for this purpose, signed tickets were issued by the directors. The four-volume catalogue, which was distributed abroad through 38 European booksellers, could be had in wrappers for nine florins. Fifty copies were done on large paper. A chit was given to customers in good standing, promising a fifth volume, which was published seven months after the sale and comprised indices, errata, addenda, a price list, and a list of lots that had been bought in and were now marked with prices at which they could still be purchased through the offices of the auctioneers. There were over 1,500 such BIs. These are unsold lots, books that haven't reached their reserves. 20% of the sale. And this may well be the earliest known example of something for which I only know the German word, Rückgangsliste. The catalogue is organized according to subject, with the formats entirely mixed. And there is a table at the beginning charting the order of sale, which does not strictly follow the numbering. The 8,046 lots are numbered continuously in the modern manner, and only 100 lots were scheduled to be sold per session, morning and afternoon, a slow pace indeed. Purchases had to be collated on the premises, and, once removed, could not be returned imperfect. The sale included over 260 manuscripts, mostly on vellum and illuminated, and about 1,050 incunables. It was particularly strong in the classics, Italian literature and early Dutch printing. Schoen is an exceedingly rare Dutch horai, printed by van der Meer at Delft in 1480, with characteristic Dutch penwork decoration. The edition was not represented in the United States until 1981, when this Crivenna copy came to the Morgan Library as part of an exchange of duplicates with the Royal Library in The Hague. It shows here the beginning of the Hours of the Holy Ghost. The simple but elegant binding on the Delft Horai is of a type commonly employed by Crivenna. Its Morocco or Rhone leather is thin, but has remained in very fresh condition. Crivenna owned a remarkable number of Hebrew incunables as well.
28 to be precise, including several on vellum. And he was one of the very few and certainly one of the earliest Christian collectors to buy old Jewish books for bibliophile rather than scholarly reasons. Amsterdam was an important center of the Jewish book trade in the 17th and 18th century, which perhaps explains the extraordinary prices for Crivenna's Hebrew books. The extremely rare Brescia Torah on vellum, printed by Soncino in 1492, fetched 155 florins. It's here on the slide. Eighteen leaves in the Jewish Theological Seminary Library in New York form the only fragment of the book in this country. The Soncino Tanakh of 1488 brought 500 florins, exactly the same price, for instance, as the Editio Princeps of Suetonius, Rome, Lignamine, 1470. Its description incorporates a long note on the difference of condition between Christian and Jewish books. The 1491 Lisbon Pentateuch in Hebrew, printed on vellum, made 190 florins as opposed to 102 florins for the 1477 Dutch Old Testament from Delft. A very modern price pattern, in other words. The highest price in the sale was for the Despira Virgil on vellum, 1925 florins to Quinn, the rover copy of which, at 200 florins, was to slip through von Westrainen's finger 16 years later, as related at the beginning of this lecture. The 1476 Naples Bible on vellum was bought in, its reserve being a stiff 1,500 florins. The second highest price, 1,460 florins, was fetched by the 1462 Fustenschöffer Vulgate on paper. The top description. The, the abbreviations at the top are again uh, uh, for the binding description. Two other great early Mainz books did very well. An illuminated copy of the 1459 Durandus on vellum at 920, 920 florins, a price at which the 1465 Subiaco Lactantius had failed to sell, and Gutenberg's Catholicon on paper at 700 florins. The earliest printed Bible in the sale brought only 115 florins, probably because the cataloger did not find the edition described in the literature and could not attribute or date it, although he surmised it might be as old as the 1462 Bible. It's the lot described as number 68. The description of the fine and complete copy shows the admirable effort Den Hengst and his colleagues put into the catalogue, and it is the only lot in the sale to be honoured with an illustration. This is still all the description of that one edition of the Vulgate. And this is the illustration, the incipit of the edition. It leaves us with no doubt as to what the book was, and one year later, Lair, and three years later, Panzer correctly identified it as the 1460 Strasbourg Vulgate, 
printed by Johann Mentelin, which cedes precedence only to the 42-line Bible and is very much rarer. Not surprisingly, the Crivella collection was also rich in block books, including a Biblia Pauperum at 430 florins. The Doheny copy, I'll remind you, fetched $2.2 million. An Apocalypse at 510 florins, a Speculum Humanae Salvationis, and the Conticum Conticorum. Two years after the sale had ended, Crivenna died in Rome while on his way back to Amsterdam, and the final sale was held of his reference books, the B.I.s and other rare books that had been retained, including an important collection of Jesuitica. Crivenna had planned to write a monograph on the invention of printing, a pastime of particular fascination to Dutch amateurs of the 18th and 19th century, as well as to bibliographers and printers. The Gutenberg-Costa question was a burning one in the 18th century, and even in our time intermittently rears its head. One of the Costerians was Gerard Meermann, a lawyer and one of the most important figures in Dutch collecting history, whose Origenes Typographiae first appeared in 1765, after a ballon d'essai had been floated four years earlier. The author gave a copy of his book to Thomas Hollis, who passed it on to Harvard. And the wording on, on the book plate indicates that it's a personal gift rather than than bought by the college with his money. Suitably bound, albeit without the characteristic emblematic tools, and furnished with an admiring inscription in which Miermann's library is called Noble in capital letters. I was alerted to the Miermann-Hollis connection by W.H. Bond, the former Houghton librarian who in a recent letter to me expressed his strong suspicion that Hollis visited the Meermann Library as one of his grand tour, on one of his grand tours of the continent between 1748 and 1754. Had he made his visit a dozen years or so later, the lover of liberty and literature might have been even more impressed since Meermann pulled off the greatest bibliophile coup of his life in 1765 when he bought en bloc through G.F. de Beer, the Younger, the medieval manuscript collection of the suppressed Jesuit Collège de Clermont in Paris. In 1891, H. Aumont published various documents to show that for 856 manuscripts, Meermann had paid the bargain price of 15,000 livres, about 7,500 guilders, or 750 pounds sterling. Although in the end, he had had to return 39 volumes to the king when the manuscripts, while in transport to Holland, were intercepted at Rouen. Louis XV awarded Miermann for his forced generosity with the order of Saint-Michel, but the recipient refused ever to wear the decoration. When Gerard Miermann died in 1771, the library, already one of the most famous in Europe, was inherited by his 18-year-old son. Johannes Meermann went into government, translated Klopstock, and was given the title of Comte by Napoleon. 
In continuing to build the library, he was actively supported by his wife, a published poet in her own right. When Miermont's will was activated six years after his death in 1815, his house, the collections, and 1,500 florins annually for upkeep were bequeathed to the city of The Hague. Governments, even in civilized countries, often consider cultural heritage a burden. And the city made a decision it has had reasons to regret since. It turned the bequest down. Soon after, the house was sold to the king, and the books were consigned to Messels Luchtmans, Van Kleef, and Schurlier to be sold at auction. The sale lasted a month and took place all day, every day except weekends. The ordre de vacation was quite complicated. There it is and would have had to be studied carefully in order to time the appearance of a desired lot. Roxborough fever had had ten years to abate. The White Knight sale of 1819 had not been a success. Spencer bought the Valda for Boccaccio at 40% of Blandford's cost. And it is therefore not surprising that Mehrmann prices were on the whole strong, but not spectacular. I disagree, then, with R.E.O. Eckhart's opinion that Baron von Westrhenen overpaid for his incunable purchases at the sale. The total proceeds were 131,000 florins. Von Westrhenen, who had inherited from Miermann, spent over 10,000 florins on manuscripts and printed books, including 45 Italian incunables of the greatest importance in 35 lots. When Miermann died, he also bequeathed his collection to the city of The Hague, which didn't make the same mistake twice. The highest price he paid was 300 florins for an illuminated copy of the first edition of Seneca's philosophical works, Naples, 1475. The catalogue entry... Lot 478, for this book gives Brunet as the only reference. Although cataloguing took almost three years, the Leiden, Hague, and Amsterdam partners did not do the Mehrmann collection justice, so perhaps Crivenna had been right to sell during his lifetime and supervise the catalogue production himself. One on the catalogue book was Henri Troyes' own copy of his statutes printed on vellum bound for him in Red Morocco guild with his coat of arms as King of France and Poland. And now in the Houghton Library, with the Mehrmann armorial bookplate engraved by J. von der Speck. The manuscripts, 1100 in number, were sold last. Sir Thomas Phillips, attending the sale, but of course not bidding in person, bought 660 lots, mostly through the London dealer Thomas Rod. English buyers were active throughout the sale. The Bodleian Library, through the Grakis Thomas Gaysford, Dean of Christchurch, got 59 lots. The Duke of Sussex was represented. And one of the Houghton copies of the catalogue divulges that Thorpes of London spent 6,920 florins, and William Lane of Edinburgh even more, 6,944 florins. 
when Phillips bought a holograph manuscript of an important work by the Dutch political scholar and historian Hugo de Groot, Grotius, comparing the Athenian, Roman, and Batavian systems, there was some mild consternation in the room that this manuscript should leave its country of origin. Sir Thomas then asked to see it and promptly presented it as a gift to van Westrenen. This incident of Philippian generosity, not reported in Munby, was written up with relish in the local newspaper, which betrayed its ignorance of English titles for minor nobility by giving his name as Philip Bart. It is striking that the highest prices in the sale were realized by the earliest manuscripts, 1,340 florins for a 12th century Iliad, and 1,050 florins paid by Phillips for a 9th or 10th century manuscript of Aspiritus and others on Hippiatric medicine. This was, it's, it's lot 234. This was on the manuscripts that, that Louis XV wanted, but Gerard Meermann would not give it up. Most of Phillips's Meermann purchases were sold in 1887 by his grandson, Thomas Fitzroy Fenwick, in a single large transaction to the Royal Library in Berlin for 14,000 pounds, about nine times what had been paid for them 60-odd years earlier. But a few manuscripts were not included in the deal, including one with which I should like to close this sales talk. St. Augustine's City of God. This is the opening of the second book. A superb French illuminated manuscript of circa 1300, described as 15th century in the sale catalogue. It has a 14th century shelf mark, A, on the paste down at the top. In the 16th century, it was owned by the poet Philippe de Portes. In the 17th, by the Paris Jesuits, Collège de Clermont, or Louis le Grand. In the 18th, by the Meermans, father and son. In the 19th, by Sir Thomas Phillips, he paid about three guineas. In the 20th century, it was bought by the great collector, Sir Alfred Chester Beatty. In his 1933 sale at Sotheby's, it was sold for £120 to the no less great Philip Hofer, who appeared in the price list as Goodyear's, and whose generosity to literary scholarship in this country will be recognized as no less than Meermann's and von Westrenen's in Holland. Thank you very much.